You're listening to SequelCast 2 and Friends, a proud part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. I would collapse, I would draw the shades, and I would live in the dark. I would never get out of my slar pad nor clean myself. My fluids would coagulate, my cone would shrivel, and I would die, miserable and lonely. The stench would be great. Everybody across the land, here's a special from SequelCast, though I don't know what it's gonna be about. Welcome to Sequel Cast Special, a movie talking about topics on uh, films at large. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. Um, you know, lately we've been talking over on Sequel Cast 2, talking about the Wayne's World duology, so I thought it'd be fun to do an episode about Saturday Night Live feature films. Uh, with me is Thrasher. Musical guest! And Alex. Musical guest, Rage Against the Machine! And that theme song you just heard is by Mark with a C. Check them out at Mark with a C at bandcamp.com. Why did I do that shot in your pause there? That doesn't make any sense. Um, <laughs> I like it. Oh, thank you. Uh, like so it. SNL, you know, um, they've done less movies over the years than I've thought, but it, it seems like it's more because it's a lot of, some of them are hits, some of them aren't. Uh, but it, they started, you know, back in 1980 with the Blues Brothers. And the most recent one was, wow, 10 years ago with MacGruber. Yeah, it's Which pretty hy- wild. Hypothetically, MacGruber's getting a sequel that I think is supposed to go direct to Peacock. It's getting a TV huh. series. Oh, never mind. A spin-off TV series okay. on Peacock. Um, yep. So. Yeah, it makes sense. Like, um, It's funny because Wayne's World and, I mean, there's 12 years between the first um, the first SNL flick, um, Blues Brothers, and then Wayne's World. And they, they were both hits. And then a lot of these other ones afterwards didn't make a whole lot of money now, on, there's on a video whole... they must have done okay but you're right oh yeah there's a whole right. bunch packed into the 90s but before mm-hmm. that and after that there's huge gaps and i'm not sure why oh, yeah, that totally. is because blues brothers was a big hit I, I figure the way we'll do this fellas is just gonna go chronologically doing quick hits on these things because right and it'll be the best way but before we do that um why don't we talk about did your family watch snl as a thing together because i know mine did um, they would let it was like the one show we'd be able to stay up late for. Yeah, so, oh, we did. Sort of like because because you know my my parents you know my parents were part of that original SNL audience when it first started and like that yeah. was their cast. But they had kind of like like a lot of people do they had kind of they had kind of left SNL around the time that that cast left. Um, but then me and my siblings we kind of discovered SNL around the time Wayne's World came out, which is also when. Comedy Central was most of their programming was SNL reruns. So we got oh, yeah. into yeah, watching right. those old episodes. 
And it was kind of fun because every now and then, like, a recurring bit would come on that my parents would recognize and we would, you know, we'd talk about it, reminisce over it. Um, it wasn't until, uh, like, it probably wasn't until, like, the late, the it wasn't until, like, the, the late 90s, like, 98, 99, when I would straight up watch new episodes with my parents. Because I would always stay up to watch it. Uh, sometimes one of my parents would be up late and we would like watch it together. At least the first half, they'd usually leave around weekend update. And that still kind of happens if I'm visiting my family, you know, <laughs> if I'm visiting my family back in Virginia, if I'm up late and they're up late, inevitably we'll end up watching SNL. <laughs> and so we do kind of, we do, we do kind of bond over it. Yeah. I mean, my, my family has kind of a special history with SNL just in that when uh, my mom and dad were, were dating uh, before they got married, um, you know, they were both in the, uh, one was in the army, one was in the Marines, but they, they were back at, at home where my mom le- grew up in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And at this bar every Saturday night, my mom and her friends would go and they'd play Saturday Night Live on the TV in the bar. Huh. And this was like during the first, you know, five years or so when it was on. Um, and my dad had never seen it before. So that was the first time oh, he watched SNL was with, uh, with my mom. But yeah, we would watch it all together as a family growing up. Uh, it, it would have been in, when we moved back from the States, like probably 90, 91. So it was when the cast was kind of overstuffed a bit, I think. A, a great cast, I think one of my favorite cast. But with, uh, you know, Chris Farley, Adam Sandler, uh, Phil Hartman, John Lovitz, all those guys. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's my sort of SNL thing. What about you, Alex? Do you remember um, like what kind of shows you started watching? Yeah, kind of a similar scenario. Like, um, you know, obviously it was like, you know, the parents are the fans of the uh, the first cast, you know. And then, like you said, um, and I think I've referenced this before on the show, like Comedy Central before South Park is such a different network. It was just basically... Oh, yeah. oh, of, oh, sure. Yeah. Reruns of At the Apollo, reruns of SNL. So, like, my brother and I always watched the cast that was like the, the Wayne's World era of Phil Hartman and, you know, Dana mm-hmm. Carvey and, and uh, John Lovitz and Billy, you know, and uh, Phil, yeah, of, of that alumni, you know. And, of course, you know, your parents are always leaning over your shoulder being like, ah, they're funny, but they're no Eddie Murphy, they're no John Belushi, you know. <laughs> right. Like, they're not that good all right guys you know but um it it all kind of came around but we would periodically watch it but then like of course fast forward just like a few years later then again then like before we're in our 20s me and my brother turning to our parents already like oh they're no chris farley oh yeah he's no couldn't hold a candle or john lovett so it's kind of funny how quickly the camp turns around even though i've come to appreciate every cast member of snl yeah you know there's something like snl that's kind of like with uh oh i don't know like you're music where whatever you listen to when you were a teenager is the one that you swear is the best and oh they don't make stuff like that anymore <laughs> oh yeah exactly it, but it's the most formative one but yeah i think you can kind of look back a bit more critically and i i do strongly feel that era in the early 90s was a pretty damn good cast oh yeah no it's, it's stars out of that. i mean adam sandler's probably been the most financially successful uh oh first yeah. to make the transition from cast to well i guess robert downey jr if you're going to be pedantic about it but if you want to get technical yes <laughs> it's um and that is a different cast it helps make the show fresh i mean i frankly i don't think it's been good for a while there's been some good people on it she favor right. they kind of screwed over a bit although now he has a deal doing stuff with showtime but anyway we're supposed to be talking about snl movies here um before we go in chronological order i'm just kind of curious what's your first saturday night live movie you watched for me i think it's the first wayne's world 
for me, it it was in fact uh, Blues Brothers. It would it would have been like a year or two before Wayne's World. It was one of those things. Like uh, it was the weekend. I couldn't sleep. My dad couldn't sleep. Mm. Blues Brothers was on cable, nice. and Dad's like, "Oh, the Blues Brothers. This is really good. We should watch this." And he was right. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think uh, I would probably say either Blues Brothers or Wayne's World. Like you said, well, like Blues Brothers was always on cable, so. Well, I don't think I have the attention span to actually sit down and watch it and get all the jokes. It was like there's car chases and a lot of physical humor and a lot of like, you know, memorable lines. So like I was definitely watching it, but I wasn't uh, fully aware of it. But um, it's either Blues Brothers or Wayne's World. Yeah, definitely. And, and most of these I did not see in the theater. I, I rented. Actually, oh, I yeah. haven't seen any of these in the theater. All of these I rented probably on videotape. In the yeah, I don't think I've seen any in the theater, yeah. With the exception of uh, maybe the last few. One of these I haven't even seen, but we'll, two of these, we'll get there. So yeah, as as uh, started in 1980 with the Blues Brothers, directed by John Landis, written by Dan Aykroyd and John Landis, um, I, I found a vintage interview with Dan Aykroyd in which they, just, they were asking him, well, you know, you've written a lot of your material. How does it feel collaborating with John Landis? And he says, I think it's good because what I write is more street. And John Landis gives a Disney gloss on things. That's a huh. very odd comparison, but the original script to Blues Brothers and apparently Ghostbusters was like this as well. It was like the size of a Bible, like really wow. thick. Had all this stuff, like the Blues Brothers cars would, would drive under the water with these James Bond gadgets. And the wow. Aykroyd really kind of goes out there with the initial drafts of his scripts, especially in the early days when he was writing. Yeah feature he he's a man with a lot of ideas right yeah he's a pretty out there dude um, yeah, that, that's yes. something you hear again and again is like when when dan Aykroyd is just allowed to write on his own you get these bulky monstrous borderline mm-hmm. uh, unfilmable behemoths but then when he co-writes just pure gold you know oh, he's yeah. one of those people who who does does improve by collaboration well that being said mm-hmm. i do want to read the original script for ghostbusters i want to read God that damn. glorious mind fuck of a movie because the, the ghostbusters original script it was about it was already an international franchise and you had like ghostbusters in china and france and really and parallel dimensions yeah. uh-huh wow. yeah i man i would have liked to see that movie but i wonder how the new ghostbusters is going to be right it's supposed to come out i don't out. know yeah it's going to come out this year they pushed it to next year because of covid Right. Um, the, the trailer doesn't make it seem like a comedy. It seems no. way too maudlin. I, it makes it, it seem like, like I thought it was a fake trailer. Honestly, I thought it was like a fan cut <laughs> yeah, trailer. Yeah. I really I did. I was, see like, that. I was like, this is way too soon. I thought it was way too soon. I was like, Ugh. also, I don't know. The new Ghostbusters to me seems like such a reaction to the 2016 Ghostbusters, yes. and yeah, I was I on the side of liking the 2016 Ghostbusters. Well, well, we reviewed it on the show, and like, I, I don't good. like my personal. Like, I don't think it's a good movie, but it is very funny. I, I enjoyed funny, watching it. Yeah. Out of it, very entertaining. I, I, I wouldn't. I need to watch that again. I wasn't in a great headspace when I watched it the first time theatrically, and I've heard the extended cut has some pretty good stuff in there. Um, yeah. But, um, it, I just think the fan culture around it, like the weird sexist shit of like, oh, oh. you're ruining my childhood. Uh, I mean, just like, like that was a crossover with Star Wars, the last. Jedi and some other right. going on. Yeah, toxic culture and and with the I mean, don't get me started on like the Justice League, uh, Zack Snyder oh, cut and some yeah. of that. Oh, yeah, some yeah, of yeah. that. There's going to be a documentary about that movie released in 20 years, and our minds mm-hmm. are just going to explode on, on Justice like, League boiled eggs in a microwave. Yeah, Justice oh, League. Yeah, I, I can't wait. Because there's yeah. like stuff with Joss Whedon coming out of the woodwork. Oh my god! Okay, stuff anyway, stuff comes out almost daily for about the Snyder cut now. It's exhausting, <laughs> right? Um, 
I guess they're spending, um, like I've heard they're spending fifty million on it to like oh do goodness. all the CG and and get the actors uh, back. Oh For for a director, that that amount of money is unheard of for a new. Company. I mean, like you know, the, we we still can't see the magnificent Ambersons in its entirety. There's a four hour cut of the Wild Bunch out there that we're we'll never going to see. <laughs> but oh, okay. thank our lucky stars, we get the freaking Snyder cut, a freaking Justice League. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, Oliver Stone made four fucking cuts of Alexander. Um, right. I need, yeah. I need to pick some of those up and I, I i'm thinking of doing a book on that just looking at the different because it's just crazy that amount of cuts oh, anyway yeah, we're supposed to be talking yeah. about snl <laughs> movies excuse me but yeah blues brothers john landis uh this movie the the soundtrack was a runaway bestseller but the blues brothers themselves also had albums that were bestsellers it started as a bit on snl uh actually they started in b costumes doing mm. r&b standards it was on the <laughs> first or second episode i think of snl pretty early on oh yeah and, and then later they jazzed it up uh, dressed as the blues brothers and these kind of men in black kind of things with the suits and the hat and the dancing and uh dan Aykroyd was excellent on the harmonica and john belushi big old fat guy could really do the dancing and the moves and had just such charisma in a different way from dan Aykroyd's. Yeah. i don't want to say stiffness but it's they played well off each other yeah definitely well, it's they- kind of funny that Sorry, yeah. Well, Ackroyd is kind of the the Joe is kind of the the uh, Jack Webb of the duo when they're in character as the Blues Brothers. It's kind of straight to the point, no nonsense. Um, But I think I think the other thing about the Blues Brothers is that both Dan Ackroyd and Jim Belushi, or or John Belushi. Wait, which Belushi are we talking about? I I got John. John. John Jim is the one that's in the Canine series. But uh, (laughs) they, uh, uh, but they. They both like going into SNL even before they do these characters. Both really liked blues music, Motown music, Delta blues, like just the really good foundational stuff. And you see their love for that kind of music just flowing forth when they would do the Blues Brothers characters. Right, and so yeah, I mean, yeah. on one hand, you could criticize Blues Brothers for oh, it's white people doing covers of black music, but in in the movie, especially, you have a lot of the original R and B people doing their their hits it's a jukebox musical and it frankly the soundtrack and the movie the blues brothers revived the careers of people like ray charles and aretha franklin and Mm -hmm. so forth yeah they got much deserved renaissances because this movie introduced them to not only a new generation of fans but just whole new segments of fans and also, like, you get the vibe that the Blues Brothers are the Blues Brothers because they hold these, you know, famous musicians in such high reverence. You know what I mean? It's not like appropriation. It's more of a, it's more of a veneration type thing. Um, exactly. Yeah, it's very much more of a tribute. Um, and it's kind of funny that, like, you mentioned, like, that John Landis, like, disnified the material because I just don't think of that with John Landis, like. You think of something like American Werewolf in London, like, it's funny, but there's, like, some pretty chilling shit going on there. Like, it's a, yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's because John Landis was a consummate fantasist. Like, there was just enough fantasy around even his most grim subject matter that made it very palatable. Right, right. Um, But, yeah, I mean, the Blues Brothers, there's a lot going on in that movie. It's, like, it's got the road movie thing. It's got the musical going for it. It's got the just straight-up comedy going for it. Um, The musical sequences are directed... um, on purpose, in an old school Bubsley Berkeley kind of style, where they're in wide right. shots, you can actually see the people dancing, and you're you not get to see the whole every second. Yeah, 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 which is really yeah. cool. Uh, and I, I, I love the. I mean, it was shot in Chicago. I, I love the sort of sequence 
I can't recall the number right now, but they're the whole town is like dancing around the city and stuff. Mm. Uh, it's it, you have like big, you know, musical numbers like that with a lot of dancing, and then you have stuff that's like really compact where they're in the uh, fried chicken uh, shack and it's Aretha Franklin and Carrie Fisher and stuff are in there and Aretha Franklin goes uh you got to think what to do to do to me i don't yeah I, I can't sing but right but it's you have these intimate and wide scale numbers and i mean blues brothers it, it's a long movie i'll give you that and the later versions is an even more extended version but it's um it really holds up and also the album's great uh, Minnie the Moocher. I mean, what a song. Oh, and to end yeah. that, you got mm-hmm. all these like stone hippie students, or not hippies, but you know, like stone students, like singing along with Cab Calloway. Yeah, the real guy well, performing it. Well, they do the whole call and response, which is such an important mm-hmm. part of that oh, song oh, yeah. and Cab Calloway in general. I guess, you know, I think the other thing is like the movie doesn't date because the Blues Brothers are already two men out of time. Uh, but then all the acts sure. are so classic, they're also out of there. They exist sort of out of time. Also, they fight Nazis. That's pretty yes, badass. Yeah. That is. I know. And the There's scene with the cars in the mall, like, that's quite, oh, yeah. the, quite the set piece. Oh, they trash that loves his car mall. crashes. And I think there was kind of like um, this like little informal competition between John Landis and, and George Romero. Because I think after <laughs> Dawn of the Dead, John Landis is like, all right, I got to destroy them all too. <laughs> Which I think is great. And, uh, I mean, when um, Cab Calloway came to do that number, he originally was, was very mad that John Landis wanted him to do the original kind of style of it because mm. uh, Calloway had a disco kind of style. And, and yeah, Landis right. convinced him, like, no, you have to do, you know, the original, this this movie, among other things, is about kind of like a throwback to, to this sort of music. And so and when he actually got into it, he actually had a pretty good time with it. Um, unfortunately, yeah. during the shoot, John Belushi was heavily, heavily on, on cocaine and who knows what else, you know, all the yeah. drugs. But despite all that, I think he does a good performance and it helps that he has sunglasses covering his eyes. Yeah, if you're going to do that much cocaine, it sure does help to hide your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, th- I love just the madness of this movie. And it's it's funny because like I think John Landis is um, kind of like an offshoot from the new Hollywood for like the film school generation. And that he's more of like a more on like the nerd side, like Joe Dante yes. and Alan Arkish, yeah. you know. He's up the the other school thought, the other school from like you know your uh, from your you know uh, uh, you know fucking um, Jesus blanking on the name, you know all the other new wave directors, Peter Bogdanovich and mm-hmm. Francis Ford Coppola, um, and that he's kind of doing like what you would see Tarantino do later, this like mishmashing of all the genres and, and studio films he grew up watching. But here there's a little more continuity, a little more coherence to it. Whereas like, you know, you have something like Kill Bill, it's such a splash of everything. This is like a crazy splash, but it's contained and packaged and a little bit more coherent that I, I really, really, really admire. Also very quotable. We're on the mission from Gad. On a mission from Gad. What is it? It's like, I've got half a pack of smokes. <laughs> half a pack of smokes. Uh, it's midnight. We're driving with busted <laughs> headlights and we're wearing sunglasses. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just love the line about the, again, the chicken scene. I just love, but he's just ordering fried chickens, like two fried chickens. Like it's just Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Uh, or like when they're in that honky tonk bar, and like to the crowd's gonna fucking kill rawhide. them, but then they sing yeah. the rawhide theme song. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, Dan Aykroyd can really hit, make his voice quite low to hit that register. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. oh yeah. Um, and John Landis was still in his twenties when he directed this, which is insane. To me. And 
Yeah, I mean, Blues Brothers, he filmed in the same year as, as um, maybe Animal House or something. It's something crazy like that. Hey, yeah, was, it's close together. The, uh, the 80s were quite the the height, I think, of John Landis' career. I don't think anyone would argue that. Um, Cocaine's yeah. a hell of a drug. You can get a lot of yep. movies made. <laughs> um, I would like to see John Landis do some more stuff. You know, it's it's been a while, but he's kind of, I guess he's retired. They're, all those guys are getting old in their 60s or 70s, so... Knows, yeah, and he's man. probably, okay. maybe he's trying to avoid working with his son. Uh, I, I'm not going to get into well, that. Well. <laughs> into that. Um, so we're going to move on to, as we said, it was a good 12 years to do Wayne's World. You can listen to our episodes on Wayne's World at SequelCast2.com, but that, that movie still works. Stone Cold Classic, very funny. Mike Myers, uh, big success. Oh, yeah, and um, I, it also makes me wonder if... Um... It had something to do with like the uh, like VHS tapes of like Wayne's World skits of like Blues Brothers skits coming out at that time too on on VHS because um, you know I think after that I was like we can capitalize on the skits even more so if we put them out on VHS because uh, I definitely remember right like, right because home yeah. video at least home video being affordable mm-hmm. where you could get a tape for twenty dollars mm-hmm. uh, it was fairly new in the nineties right. Well, I think- I think the other thing about about you know Wayne's World beyond what we've already talked about on the episodes where we covered it is that Wayne's World proved that the Blues Brothers was not a fluke. It proved that exactly. a movie based on SNL sketch characters could make bank. And and that's the that's the other thing about these movies is the challenge is you know a sketch or a bit or a character it is something designed to be funny and entertaining for about five minutes or so. But with right. the movie, it's got to be funny and entertaining for about for like two and for an hour and a half to two hours, and that's right. the real challenge. And yeah, both I mean, Blues Brothers and a, Wayne's World yeah. grow so much out of their source material that it works. It's a tall right. order, and as as we go through these films, it's usually not successful. It's a really hard thing yeah. to do. Uh, comedies are really hard anyway. I think it, humor is so um, you know individualistic, depending on the person. Like right. a drama, you could show, I don't know, like Schindler's List to someone, and they'd probably be moved by it and say it was a good film. But I could show Airplane oh, yeah. to someone, and someone might say this is great, someone might say this is stupid. Right, it's just comedies a bunch of dumb jokes. You know? yeah, I think comedies are just much easier to uh, to criticize, but people are a lot more picky about their comedy. Um, the year after Wayne's World, in 93, speaking of Ackroyd, you had Coneheads as hmm. a feature. I have not seen this in a long time, but I recall it being pretty good. I yeah. have an unironic love for this movie, and I think right. that, one, it's the science fiction comedy, but also, it is for most of its runtime, it is such a low stakes family comedy just about Fish domestic out of water. Stuff. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's basically just like a you know immigration allegory too, which is oh, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's a pretty oh, pretty, pretty interesting. Oh. It's a perfect immigration yeah. story. It is Electric very pro immigration. It's very yeah. pro immigrant. <laughs> but but just the fact that it's wrapped up in this whole like sort of science fiction narrative. Yeah, it's it's a it's about it's it's about two two refugees who grasp the right. American dream. That's what this movie is about. And, and I just love that. Has a small part as like kind of the grand poobah of, of the Coneheads, and you you get a delightful kind of stop motion monster fight. Oh, the Garthonk. Yeah, yeah, which is which is good. This is directed by someone we talked on the show way back in the beginning, Steve Barron, who also mm-hmm. directed the first Ninja Turtles movie. Oh, okay, yeah, 
Yeah, I remember um, liking this a lot when I was younger, and we rewatched it a few months ago. I forget. I think we just referenced oh. it. Like, let's watch Conehead. Yeah. Sure. And I was surprised. I was like, this is a pretty solid movie because I think it was on HBO or Comedy Central a bunch growing up. So I'd watched it a ton. And I just yeah. hadn't revisited it since. But I think it's, it's a good, again, it's like um, the reason why Wayne's World and Blues, Brother work, Blues Brothers work so well is because it's the stuff you laughed at and remember from the skit. And it's, you know, elaborated on, not stretched out. And like, I think when you have a, a, a you know, a gag or a skit, in order to find out if it's going to be funny or not, you really have to work it out. You know what I mean? Like, like you said, with comedy, it can be so subjective. And whether or not it's funny or not, you can't really tell until you do it, you know? And then if you don't have the chemistry and if you don't have the timing and it doesn't work, then it just doesn't work and you're kind of stuck with a crappy movie. Whereas if you luck out and have some good creative oomph behind it, you get something like Coneheads, Wayne's World, or, or Blues Brothers. And Chris Farley had a memorable part in there as the boyfriend, I think, of the daughter. Oh, yeah. Of oh, the Connie Conehead, Conehead yeah. Now, it, it, it is kind of like a commercial. It's a product, product placement subway scene. But it, Chris <laughs> Farley is just so lovable and... and that he gets more to do in that than say Wayne's World or Wayne's World Two is kind of nice. Right. So yeah. what, what's so weird about about Coneheads is I I bet this was long gestating because this was not yes. the first uh, time they tried to make Coneheads work outside of SNL in 1983. Dan Aykroyd and Jane Curtin starred in a pilot for a Coneheads animated series, which was which was directed by Rankin and Bass. Whoa! Is that on YouTube year? or something? Uh, it was on YouTube a few yeah. years ago. That's where I saw it. You might be able to still find it. Just look for Coneheads Animated 1983 huh. Rankin Bass. It's it's not like it's funny. The animation is <laughs> is kind of good in the, at that weird yeah. Rankin Bass way. I mean, it certainly looks like a Rankin Bass production. So it, so it's two D animation. It's not stop motion. Yeah, yeah, it's all two D oh, animation. Okay. Um, but the other thing that but the thing that's so weird is clearly they meant for it to have a laugh track. But the version I saw, they never laid the laugh track huh. in. So there's all these awkward pauses after everything that's supposed to be funny. Oh, I, it, it's kind of a whole genre on YouTube of its own where they will like a guy will take a clip of Full House and then just remove the laugh tracks. And it's just these cre- it becomes almost Lynchian with like these long yeah, pauses. Between what, what are my favorite versions of that there is a pac-man animated christmas special yes and sure. there was a recut of it where it's you know how every every movie has every christmas special can be summed up as well billy i guess we're not going to have a christmas this year wait what's that and so like yeah. you know like oh no my sleigh will never fly i'm so many disappointed children there'll be no christmas and the baby pack starts crying and then it just cuts to the credits <laughs> <laughs> there, there's oh, a yeah. great series of videos I, I need to try to do my version of it because i think almost anything works but the end of the schwarzenegger film predator it it plays like the opening credits of a sitcom because this actor is doing poses like <laughs> oh i know yeah looking at the camera right? and someone like dubbed over the full house theme song or something it just works perfect <laughs> standing tall yeah. <laughs> the wings of my dreams but yeah, uh, Coneheads. I, I i'd recommend searching that one out it's probably it's out of print i imagine it, it's kind of hard to yeah, find i think but, so but, uh, also, you... special effects are good. Like they yes. create oh, a really oh, yeah, compelling sure. world for the Conehead species, and the Garthunk looks amazing. It, it's kind of a like Bill Tippett effect. Yeah, yeah. One, mm-hmm. I think it was one of. I believe that was one of the last, if not the last, go motion monsters used mm-hmm. in film before CGI just took over everything. Yeah, and um, mm-hmm. this is a great cast. Sure. 
Dan Aykroyd, Jane Curtin, Michael McKeon, uh, Michelle Burke, David Spade, Chris Farley, Sinbad, Michael Richards, Phil oh, yeah. Hartman, Adam Sandler, Jason Alexander. I mean, it, Sinbad yeah. was the dentist, if memory recalls. But yeah, it's uh, yeah. a solid, solid picture. Uh, 93 as well, Wayne's World 2. You can hear us talk about that at SequelCast2.com. Not quite as good as the first, in, in my opinion, but it, it has some moments that uh, I, I like. It has some more surrealism. I'm always a fan of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they rushed it out too soon, I think. You know, one, if you yeah. have sequel, it's kind of like what they did with Scary Movie 2, where it came out in uh, right. 2001 and the first one came out in 2000. Um, yeah, it definitely feels rushed. There's still there's still a lot of funny bits in it. Um, like I said, we covered it, but like, you know, the, the Kung Fu fight and... Um, uh, the Aerosmith stuff and Wayne Stock and the the um, the British groupie there, Ralph. I'm sorry, forgetting his name. Um, Ralph Nelson, I think. Yeah. The next SNL movie was uh, one year later, '94, with "It's Pat," based on the sketch about Pat, where the whole joke is: is Pat a man or a woman? I think it's pretty obvious it was a a woman playing a male. Uh, <laughs> when Tarantino did a revision on this screenplay uncredited and uh this movie was really hard to find well it came and went to theaters so fast as as i recall in in my in where i lived it didn't even go to the main theaters it went straight to the dollar and second run theaters (laughs) i remember um i feel like they really were pushing it commercially because i remember when this came out seeing the ads constantly like that stupid line like are you happy to see me or is that just a banana in your pocket? And then Pat goes, actually, it's a banana in my pocket. Like, I can still quote that because that, the commercials just, like, smashed it into my head. But um, I caught, like, flickers of the movie. It would pop up on TV and stuff, and I'd watch a few minutes, and it was just not funny at all. It was <laughs> I've heard from funny. people who saw that it was terrible, but this, this is, like, and this is this is a, this is a sketch with a, these are a series of sketches with a lot of stuff in it that, that dates very, very mm-hmm. poorly. Transgender, um, yeah. Uh, even even if you buy into the premise that even if you buy into the premise that the joke is not on Pat, the joke is about everybody who insists on trying to fit Pat into a uh, into a right. standard uh, gender norm. But like it's it's also I can't help but feeling like with with the success of all the SNL movies that came before it, it 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 feels like this had to have been deliberately sabotaged. Like at some point, the people responsible for this movie were like, maybe let's not have a full release. <laughs> I mean, according to Box yeah. Office Mojo, the budget was $8 million, which is pretty cheap for a comedy, uh, and it yeah. cost uh, $60,000 <laughs> the U.S. and Canada. Yeah. It's just nuts. I mean, yeah, I think they just wanted to bury it. Um, yeah. My blockbuster video that I worked at, you know, this kept on getting stolen and all these things. Like, <laughs> I don't know. What? It is and, and, I don't I know. know. Right? And, and to be frank, uh, in, in the 90s on SNL, a lot, there was a lot of gay panic humor. There was a lot of transgender, trans panic humor. Well, and this... a lot of a lot of anti, you know, sort of like racist. No, oh, it was racist portrayal of like Japanese uh, yeah. humor. Yeah. Well, th- th- as I recall, this was around the time that this was like around that one season that Janine Garofalo was on SNL, correct? Yeah, why don't you tell that mm-hmm. story? Yeah, yeah. so yeah, there was one season where Janine Garofalo was on SNL. And of course, Janine Garofalo is amazing. Um, and she was, she when she was able to shine on SNL, she was likewise amazing. But it was very much kind of a guy's show at the time. Mm-hmm. And they really yeah. didn't know how to use her. But the other thing about that season, and she... 
she has talked about this frequently is that when they didn't know how to end a sketch, it just ended with a man on man rape joke. And that is yep. not an exaggeration. I have, I, yeah. I was watching SNL pretty regularly at the time. That is what they did. Like there, oh. there's a whole sketch where a UFO lands in central park. And that's the whole joke. Anytime anyone goes into the spaceship, they get sexually assaulted by the aliens. Jesus but when they Christ. come out of the spaceship, they don't want to talk about it. Uh, like it's uh, it's not a good season. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll put that out there. It was a sort of a transformative, like interstitial area of of comedy where he had things like South Park, and it's like, oh, we got to be edgy. But right. I, I think if you do edginess with satire, it works better, and it's a very hard uh, tightrope to to walk on. Mm. It, it's a weird thing because, like, I I will I will defend bad taste. I think bad taste does have a right to exist, but. <laughs> It still needs to have some other merit to it beyond beyond the yep. shock. And there's just a lot of sketches that just that don't that don't work. And then you tack on uh, a really bad taste ending to the sketch that also doesn't work. And so there's there's really not much to recommend. And as a result, you know, some like because like Chris Farley and a number of other people were still on uh, during this era. Their talents are almost completely wasted be, because of that particular the the missteps of that season. Oh, yeah, because if you have like a hot take or, you know, some some like edgy, raunchy humor, you don't you're, you're going to the people are going to aren't going to rely as much on good performances or, or charisma. They're just going to count on that punchline on that like wow factor. And Saturday and not, Night Live, I would never call edgy. I would say Mad TV was more edgy and transgressive in that way. And at Saturday time, Night yeah. Live, if you're going to get edgy, you put that in weekend update or maybe on the last right. of the night after midnight. Right. Um, yeah, because like, um, isn't that why Norm Macdonald got uh, booted off the uh, crew because he made too many um, OJ references? Yep. What uh, as I recall, it was too it was too many uh, disparaging jokes about Michael Jackson and the scandals oh, okay, that were following yeah. him at the time. Some of column A, some of column B. Also, a lot of Frank Stallone jokes to the point that when Sylvester Stallone <laughs> guested on the show, he was like, "Lay off my brother, will you?" <laughs> I, I don't know. That didn't even sound. What was that? It was like a shitty John Wayne impression. Well, um, that's. That that's actually that's a it's, we're talking about quoting like that that is something I will still quote today uh, is if like some if somebody like asks a question I will respond you guessed it Frank Stallone <laughs> right um, so I mean in '95 I've always meant to see this movie again it's it's hard to find it's out of print it's expensive to to purchase Stuart saves his family yeah I love cool. this movie this uh, this this is truly a great movie, and it is a shame that it's so underappreciated. Yeah, it's like a it's sobering like, family drama, like about yeah, like somebody yeah. and alcoholism and shit. Well, well, that's what makes it work. It's Stuart Stuart Smalley, he's a character that had been on SNL. It's played by Al Franken, who and, and he hosted a show called Daily Affirmations, where he just sort of he was this gentle kind of quiet guy who used sort of like pop psychology and affirmation to try to improve people's lives. Um, and so this movie, it's all, it's all about him. And what makes this, one of the things that makes this movie work so well is he's the only funny character. He is right. this goofy sketch comedy character who exists in what is essentially a drama about a, about a family with a lot of problems because the father is, cause like the parents are kind of inattentive. The father's an alcoholic, his brother's an alcoholic, people are trapped in abusive relationships. Yeah. And he's trying to use this pop psychology to navigate the psychological minefield that is his family. And what's so great is everyone else in the movie gets great dramatic stuff. And one mm -hmm. thing this movie does so well, you know, having been through some very dark times in my life, 
like that even in the worst moments of your life, there is these little these little rays of sunshine you just have to grab onto. <clears throat> and there's this great sort of flashback about the one time Stuart and his brothers were proud of their dad when this like mean old man kind of like stole a football and his dad beat the got beat the neighbor up to get their football <laughs> back and how like oh they're he's such a like that was the the one time they looked on their family like their dad is like a hero they always wanted him to be and he never really lived right. up to that again and there's like just great moments like that like St stewart's first brush with disappointment when he entered this contest and could have won a million dollars and could have like financially saved his family when he was six years old and then he doesn't win the contest the person who does it's all about coming up with a with a name for the knight that's on this uh that's on this uh was like uh, like a cleaner or or, or a or a, uh, a dough or something it's okay. or some like bread yeah. flour it's a knight and he, like he wants oh yeah sir 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 cleans a lot and the one the 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 contest entry that wins is like sir wash a lot which is the lamer version <laughs> of that title <laughs> and just like I, how crestfallen he gets when they announce the winner on TV. <laughs> I mean, I like I'll... the um, framing device of the, of the changing the storm windows is like the demise of so many family members. And there's a scene where Vincent D'Onofrio is like, Hey dad, tomorrow why don't we get loaded and put on the storm windows. And they're like, oh, you know, like everyone gasps. <laughs> oh yeah. Like, yeah. Every man, like the, the, every man in their family dies in, in middle family, age yeah. by getting drunk and trying to work on the <laughs> roof and falling to their death. Which is horrible for me to laugh at, but like, I mean, there's some stupid moments where sometimes I'm like, I'm going to clean the top of the fridge after a couple of beers. I'm like, oh my God, is this going to be like a Stuart Smalley moment? <laughs> but it's kind of, but it's kind of true though. Like, you know, yes. there can even, it may even be in your own family, but like there's certain like self-destructive behaviors that keep showing up generation after generation. So this right. movie also addresses generational trauma. And I just also love like when his brother does fall off the roof and doesn't die. And how, like, right. the brother is disappointed that he sort of failed to live up to the family mm -hmm. legacy by surviving this fall from the roof. It's because like he was dancing in, like, uh, Forrest Gump. <laughs> like, his legacy I... was to die in Vietnam, and he's mad that he survived. This movie has such depth, and I'm so sorry that, like, I... I, uh, strangely enough, I feel like this is the movie that's the most obscure one on this list. Like, I don't know anyone who's seen this movie. Right, and I don't know, think... This, this is the kind of movie Shout Factory should should put out yes as a version with all the trimmings oh, um, in, in several podcast appearances uh, former senator al franken uh said things like people on the street will ask him why didn't that get a sequel and he just says you know <laughs> i would have done a, a second Stuart saves his family but it lost it didn't make money and that's what you need to know about hollywood um right so it's like I, I think it's a film, like you said, well-deserving of a renaissance via some boutique Blu-ray. And, you know, I, I think at the time people weren't ready for kind of like a, a very well-made dramedy, if you will, for lack of better terms. All right, and you, you want to talk uh, uh, sort of a side topic real quick. There's a lot of SNL films that they planned that were never made. Uh, one that John Lovitz complains about constantly is the that's the ticket the liar character oh the compulsive oh. liar yeah the compulsive liar was lord michaels <laughs> promised him a movie that never happened um I forgot about that do you know if a was, script was written i don't think a script was written um there was one that i think odenkirk was was working on that would have been about hans and franz and schwarzenegger even agreed to do it but then oh. it fell through yeah 
There was the Sprockets movie that I yes. believe, yes. Like, in, in addition to Mike Myers and I believe Odenkirk again, we're going to collaborate on the script. And I believe actually there's rumors that there is a script, but I believe yeah, also, uh, wasn't like Tom Hanks going to produce the Sprockets movie and the Hans and Franz movie because he had so much fun yeah. working with them on SNL? Uh, awesome. I'm not sure about that, but like Ron Howard was going to be a producer on the Sprockets huh. movie and Brian nice. Grazer. Yeah. And uh, I, the reason why Sprockets fell through is Mike Myers felt the script wasn't that good, but it was something mm. that he agreed. You know, they had a date that the film was supposed to come out and all these things, and the script was apparently pretty good. So I'm not quite sure why that happened. Yeah. It would have come mm. out, I think, in the middle of all the Austin Powers stuff. Oh, okay. So I'm pretty far yeah. after the time that people, you know, might not remember what the sketch is. Would remember Sprockets, yeah. Um, um, like my personal. Oh, go on. Oh, I just think like my fascination with like industrial music in Germany and like Cold War stuff. Like they really do nail like the the cultural yes. tenor of of the country in the time. Like there's even craft work in the intro music. You know, <laughs> it's uh, it's really well done. Sprockets always crack me up. Thrasher, you had mentioned uh, there's a movie that's not on this list. That's an SNL movie, sort of. Or well, well, uh, we'll we'll get to it later because well, actually, let's let's talk about it. So before we get into okay. Blues Brothers 2000, so there, yeah, there. So the Blues Brothers, they they like after the success of the Blues Brothers movies, there were attempts to revive the characters and make them real multimedia clips, even after the death of John Belushi. Uh, and so there's two things I want to bring up. One that happened and one that didn't. The one that happened is there were a series, there were two Blues Brothers video games released for the Nintendo, Super oh. Nintendo, and yeah. Game Boy, which was just like the Blues Brothers and the Blues Brothers Jukebox Journey or Jukebox Challenge. I forget the, uh, mm. the oh, Jukebox Adventure. We're, yeah, we're like, you, you play the Blues Brothers having a platforming adventure. And I gotta say, I do like the character designs. They do look like Aykroyd and Belushi, but really kind of oh, brought wow. down in as few lines as possible. <clears throat> but in 1997, an attempt was made. There was a uh, attempt was made to do a Blues Brothers animated series, and of course, built off the success of The Simpsons and King of the Hill and things like that. And uh, uh, Peter Aykroyd was gonna be in it. Jim Belushi was gonna be in it. Mark Hamill was going to be in it. Uh. The pilot supposedly exists in its entirety. There were rumors that it went straight to series and that the other episodes were worked on. Mm. I would love to be able to find this. I've never been able to track down the pilot, but I, I, I feel like this is a glorious mess. I have to see. Well, mm. and the Blues Brothers did have a spinoff of, that kind of went south in the early 2000s of actual venues you could go to that were Blues Brothers branded uh like bar and music venues. Oh, it's 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 that it's yeah. actually the House of Blues. Thank when you, I, okay. House of Blues. I went to the first post Katrina Mardi Gras, and there's a House of Blues uh, in New Orleans. So me and my friend Gabe, you know, we're look, we're we're moving between sure. bars, looking for another place to party. We passed the House of Blues, and there's Dan Aykroyd with a grim look on his face, having some sort of conversation with wow. somebody on his cell phone. Wow. But what I love is like both me and my friend Gabe are like, oh holy shit, Dan Aykroyd. Well, he's on the phone. I guess we shouldn't bother him. But there's a person like behind us, and we, oh my god, look what? It's him. Who? The guy from Ghostbusters. Who? That guy. <laughs> the guy from Ghostbusters. Wow. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was so great. Just the enthusiasm in that fan's voice. It was pretty cool. So I've met awesome. two Ghostbusters. <laughs> yeah, nice. I was with you when we met Ernie Hudson in the elevator. Yeah, hit, hitting on that that uh, that woman. And I, <laughs> I, I, I hope they both got laid. Yeah, Ernie Hudson, 
is tall and the woman was also pretty tall, a blonde uh, woman. And uh, I think we just said how much we liked from Ghostbusters. And he said, thank you very much. And he was oh. extraordinarily polite. Well, he has oh, the best right. pickup line. Hi, I'm Ernie Hudson from Ghostbusters. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I'm sure that's the reason why some celebrities like to do the uh, Comic-Con circuit. Anyhow, on to, well, I mean, and also and something just came to mind. I don't know if this would be an SNL spinoff or not. Oh, hi. I was just shoveling more red hot takes into the old Hardcore Gaming 101 opinion furnace. <clears throat> Shaq Fu has some redeeming qualities. There's a lot of video game podcasts out there, but only HG 101 has the code Jones to objectively, definitively, scientifically rank the top games of all time. No, it's definitely pronounced Co Jones. HG 101's top games, twice a week, every week, right here on Greenlit. Hey everybody, this is Andrew from Superhero Stuff You Should Know, and we are proud to be the latest addition to the Greenlit Podcast Network. If you're a superhero fan, our show will put your knowledge to the test. Did you know Tim Burton almost made a Batman musical? Or how Superman almost had a love story with his own cousin? That's disgusting. But it's true. We cover it all, mixing clips with commentary, sketches, and impersonations. So tune in to Superhero Stuff You Should Know, available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Um, the Martin Short character, Ed Grimley, had a cartoon? Was that a character yes. he did before SNL? Yeah, he did it. Okay. Uh, he did it on. I don't know where it started. It may have even started on stage, but he did it on SCTV. And yeah, in the early '90s, back when everybody was getting animated series, there was an Ed Grimley animated <laughs> series, which I really loved. It was this weird format breaking thing. They always had a live action segment with Count Floyd. They had a fake educate. Well, I won't say fake because they did talk about real scientific principles, but they had these two scientists who would interrupt the episode to teach you to like some, explain some slapstick thing by doing a science demonstration <laughs> that one actually got a, a print on demand release on dvd yeah the completely mental misadventures of ed grimley yeah um, oh. okay on to the one that's the the second sequel on this list and the last sequel uh blues brothers 2000 came out confusingly in 98 um <laughs> yeah this was well, in the works the, for a while but the kid in yeah. there originally was supposed to be macaulay culkin Wow. And it, it would oh, have been wow. better with him in that part. But by yeah. 98, he was, you know... He was drinking he, age, nearly drinking age by then. I'm sure he, he was, was doing his own thing. He was doing things. Um, <laughs> but but Blues remember... Blues 2000, it's not as bad as you think, but compared to the original yeah. Blues Brothers, it's... Well, it's sort of the great. sequel you would expect. Good, good, not great, but because yeah. it's a sequel to a classic, it can't help but pale by comparison. Again, hell of a, hell of a cast... Uh, Pretty bold that they sequences. cast Belushi's part. I mean, they had to, obviously, because they always. Very I think that's the problem, popular. right? Yeah. Well, yeah. well, they well they don't recast it. You find out that there's a whole blues family. Right. Which they said yeah, John obviously. Belushi's character died in prison. Right. Yeah. So John Goodman plays uh, plays like Mac Blues. Yeah, but and that's the, good casting. I mean, John Goodman's pretty solid. But the Blues Brothers went. Um, on, on a kind of limited tour, maybe only at House of Blues locations, where Jim Belushi filled in for the Blues yeah, Brothers yeah. as the second. So, I mean, maybe he didn't want to do the movie because that'd be too, would be sort of cheesy or something. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't like, know. That's, that's the thing I wonder about because um, John or Goodman maybe... is, is kind of random. John Goodman is from New Orleans, but right, and he he does a good job in the film, but I, I think uh, having the kid in there is, is frankly obnoxious. Um, yeah, it's well, like trying to do a next generation thing or something. Uh, 
whatever. What I remember about this movie is that before they like before they announced it, this may have even been like the weekend before the announcement. They announced it. John Goodman was hosting SNL and he's doing his mm-hmm. opening monologue and he's wearing like a Blues Brothers suit, but it doesn't draw attention to itself, so you don't realize it. And he starts talking about the Blues Brothers and whatnot. And then, like, you know, he pulls out these sunglasses, like, oh, and by the way, I want to thank Jan Aykroyd and Jim Belushi, without whose approval this would not even be possible. And he slams on the sunglasses, Dan Aykroyd runs out on the stage, and they do, they end the opening monologue by doing Looking for a Fox. And it's like, it's a really beautiful, powerful moment, but that is essentially how they launched Blues Brothers 2000. That was to warm people up to the idea that these characters were coming back, and that there was going to be John Goodman as a new Blues Brother. That's, I'll have to look for that clip. It's inspired. Yeah, um, inspired yeah. John Landis came back to direct Blues Brothers 2000. Uh, it actually, you know, did better than a lot of other of these movies on this list. True. Um, and it, it, that you have the idea of kind of like blues R&B people facing against sort of, you know, country kind of people in, in the showdown kind of battle of the bands things at the end is it's a different enough plot i think that works well yeah part of it's a road movie and you have a crazy police car pile up with like 100 police cars or something it's just <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous uh, it's, yeah it, it does feel of a piece with blues brothers is it is good no um i for some reason i don't know why maybe it was on sale i had the blues brothers poster right above my bed uh at my mom's house and i was still able to get laid somehow so there's hope there. <laughs> there's um I think is this the first movie that kicked off the calling things 2000 trend? Well, well <laughs> like actually, the... no, for for quite some time. I think even going back to the 80s, if you wanted yeah. to make something seem high tech or, or futuristic True. or forward looking, you just put 2000 on it. And of course, once 2000 actually hits, that doesn't work anymore. Yeah, exactly. Video it's games video. did this a lot too. Um, the movie that comes to mind for me is Cherry 2000. Oh, that's a oh fun yeah. One. I, I I do love that movie actually. Yeah. There was a lot of two thousand after a uh, title. Um, later in ninety eight, you had uh, a night at the Roxbury. Which, yeah, I so, never saw this. I I did. I saw okay. it on. I didn't see when it, I saw it on video. I think uh, the that summer. Um, it's not. It's not bad. It's it's sort of it's sort of it's 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 kind of what you fear an SNL sketch movie is going to be because the whole, the whole deal with rocks, the Roxbury, um, uh, Jim Carrey had hosted SNL, uh, and their opening was, it was, it was him, Will Ferrell and Chris Kattan as these three kind of slick, slick back, like nightclub glow goers who keep doing this dumb head bobbing dance to the baby. Don't hurt me song. Was that which the first I, one? With that was, oh I, yes. And I got a story about that. Really? That was the okay. first appearance of who, who would that. be called the Roxbury guys, because I believe the, the first establishing shot of the first nightclub is like the Roxbury. Um, and, yeah. and it's all, pan, it's all pretty much pantomime. It's them doing these dumb pickup artist things while never breaking their dumb dance. And, mm-hmm. and this whole, the whole deal is, um, like, it's like, that's the premise that can't possibly sustain a movie. And you're right. It kind of doesn't. And it has kind of a, a, it sort of has a Wayne's world style plot where they're these two, I believe they're brothers in the movie. And like, they're just two young men who have no direction in their lives who eventually become successful nightclub promoters. Um, and, and, and like, it just, it just doesn't quite work, but the whole thing with Jim Carrey. So yeah, Jim Carrey, it was, uh, was in the first Roxbury sketch as mm. a result he has a character credit on this movie. Oh. 
he's huh. he's listed like he's listed in the credits. It's like based on characters created by Chris Kattan and Jim Carrey. Mm. Oh wow! And and there was actually an interview with with Chris Kattan and, and Will Ferrell. Uh, I, I I think this was on one of those or those SNL documentaries that came out in the two thousands around the shows like and one of the show's significant anniversaries where the whole the whole inspiration for the sketch was he and like some of the like other writers and performers were at a nightclub and there was basically a guy sitting like standing next to the bar do like dressed like that doing that head bob dance who kept like pointing at people like hey you want to dance huh are you looking at me huh huh and like that is so that looks so silly we got to make this into a character and they did wow I have not seen this movie in since oh, I don't know like I, I was on I visited my dad and we lived in Puerto Rico and uh, might have been like 2002 or something and someone had this happened to have this at, on DVD and we threw it on the TV to kill time. Uh, Dan Hedaya plays the their father and I recall he was pretty good in the movie. It kind of overstays its welcome, but as far as these SNL movies go, you could do worse. It's kind of middle of the road for me. Um, uh. So, I mean, there's three films left that Saturday Night Live did. It was features, uh, one of which is is one I haven't seen, but it, it has a cast there that, that looks pretty good. I always meant to rent it, never did. Superstar with Will Ferrell and, uh, oh, geez, Molly Shannon, excuse me, playing the, the character Mary Catherine Gallagher who I'm not sure if she's supposed to be autistic or something, but she has a lot of social struggles. And when she gets nervous, she'll put her hands under her armpits, which is frequently. And then smell them, which was her, which was her catchphrase. But yeah, the Mary Catherine Gallagher sketches, these were sort of delightful sketches because they are very true to a certain sort of awkward, youthful media obsessed uh, experience. So Mary Catherine Gallagher, she is a, she's a, a young teenager. She goes to a Catholic school and her her whole thing is that she's just obsessed with TV movies. That's just like that's that's her passion. She knows everything about them, and so every, like, like Lifetime or what kind of TV movies are you talking uh, about? All across the board, like they would invoke okay. everything from early seventies after school specials to Lifetime movies to I think it I think once a direct to HBO an obscure direct to HBO movie from the eighties. But like the whole the whole deal is whatever whatever the sketch was about, it would always end with her sort of saying, "Well, I think my feelings can best be expressed with a monologue from da 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 da." And she would rattle off the movie, who starred in it, and the date it originally aired. And she and and to their credit, she would recite the actual lines from the movie. But mm. at the emotional height, she would always do something to embarrass herself, which usually involved colliding with a stack of folding gymnasium chairs. <laughs> Alex, did you ever see this one? Uh, no, I remember the skit quite well, but I never got around to this one, yeah. This one's kind of delightful, because like, it puts her... It takes that character, and rather than trying to expand her world too much, it's still the world of a Catholic high school, but it sort of puts her in a teen coming-of-age drama. Uh, except she is a person who's very aware of teen coming of age dramas because of her obsession with TV movies. Uh, and there's a bit in it, the bit in it that always stands out is that there's a bit where like out of nowhere, Will Ferrell shows up as Jesus Christ to give her advice. And like, he's like surrounded <laughs> this halo, halo of light. 
And it's just so great. And she's like, well, thank you, Jesus. And he's like, well, actually, I'm not really Jesus. I'm a psychological projection. I represent all the most significant masculine influences in your life. That's why I have your father's voice. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I love how they get around that. That it's not, it's not really Jesus. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a gestalt that her mind has created to embody masculinity. <laughs> it looks That's like awesome. a, you get such a fun comedians as Mark McKinney and Harland Williams are in this one. Oh yeah. Pretty cool. I'll have to, I'll have to check that one out. You know, I, in 99, I worked at Blockbuster video at, at our particular store in Marietta, Georgia. It did not rent especially well. And something about the poster just struck me as super cheesy. Like it says superstar underneath the tagline is dare to dream. And she has, uh, Molly Shannon has hands under the armpits. Like it doesn't inspire me to rent it based on the cover, but, yeah, it's kind of a weak cover. I, I remember, I'm looking at it right now, and I'm like, oh, that's that one. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, unless you knew the sketch, there would be no compelling There would be no compelling reason to check it out. I, I mean, really, with the SNL at this time, frankly, what I would have rather seen as a, a become a movie is the Will Ferrell um, character with Rachel Dratch, where they're the, the lovers in the hot tub. Oh, Lord. <laughs> part, part of me kind of would like to see that, but also part of me struggles with what the hell would that be for two hours? Although well, they do I, establish I, their college professors. Yeah, so you could so, get a lot of humor mm-hmm. about these two sort of 70s swinging throwbacks on a modern day college campus. Or, or you Although, could do a feature on uh, Merv the Perv. Or maybe we should save our pitches for the end. I think so, yeah. Um, it's funny, but a trivia says Molly Shannon received a nomination for Blockbuster Entertainment Award for Famous Actress in a Comedy, but lost out to Heather Graham in Austin Powers' The Spy Who Shagged Me. Oh, Famous Actor in a Comedy. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I, I totally <laughs> forgot about that. You're right. Blockbuster Video did have those awards that were on TV. No one took them <laughs> seriously. Oh, yeah. Uh, they, they were not as fun to watch as like the MTV Awards where people were a bit drunk coming to accept their awards. And shouting at the stage and things. It's uh, I know. Jim I wonder like what the attendance rate was. Like, did Heather Graham accept her Blockbuster Entertainment Award? Or I mean, I I, I I would assume so. I don't know. Like sometimes the the actual person accepts the Razzie. Halle Berry accepted the Razzie for Catwoman. Yeah, like a like a like a pro. That, that was hilarious. Uh-huh. That was yeah, like, good. That made me love her all the more. I still need to see Catwoman, man. We need to cover that on the show because we did Batman years ago. But we got two more SNL films. Uh, this one, 2000 Ladies Man, I, I did not like this this movie. I, I love Tim Meadows. I think he's really talented. He yeah. was on the cast for, uh, I think it was we mentioned in one of the other shows, he was on the cast for, I think, the longest until he got beaten by uh, Kenan Thompson. Is that right? That, that yeah. is correct. Right. Tim Meadows was on for something like uh, around, like I think, 10 years. And then, like, I think Kenan Thompson's got him beat by uh, by two or three years now. Yeah, there's yeah, rumors Keenan was. There's rumors Keenan was gonna leave because he got cast in a sitcom, but he was apparently doing double duty um, last year, which I, I can't. The schedule those guys do on Saturday Night Live is just nuts. But yeah, ladies' man, very popular character. I think it's one of those sketches when you watch it. It's just funny every time. Tim Meadows, the way he embodies the character, it is. It is another throwback, like '70s character, mm-hmm. but. Um, this commits the sin of you put the ladies man and you make him fall in love and that drives a dagger in the heart of the character. Well, that might be interesting for a story or interesting as an actor to play that. 
where do you go from there? The ladies' man can no longer be a ladies' man. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Because like the, the whole the whole point of the character is that he's this guy who has a very reductive, very sort of 1970s view of sex, who nevertheless hosts a talk show where he gives rela- relationship advice. And if, like, while it might be okay to have the climax of the movie, have the ladies' man grow and fall in love having him fall in love kind of takes that away because like part of what makes the character funny is that he is so hopelessly sex driven, you know, and, and just seems you know, the way he's like, Oh, it's a lady. Let me <laughs> open up this bottle of a Cavassier. Yeah. Okay. And, um, <laughs> it's, it's, oh, it's so sophisticated and like, okay, now, um, could you, could you describe his penis and how inadequate it is? <laughs> like that was like, that yeah. was his whole thing. Like uh, he would always give the worst advice, and that that's what makes it work, right? I, I do yeah. like in here. You have Billy D. Williams as Lester. There's a funny scene with, involving pigs' feet at a bar, pickled mm-hmm. pigs' feet. Um, Alex, what what did have some thoughts on this one? I know this movie is Jesus Christ, twenty years old now, but I know, right? Wow, <laughs> um, I feel old. Uh, I mean, yeah, I remember the skit. It always had good mileage, and then I'm just thinking, I'm like, as a movie, I was like, I just, I'm not seeing it. Like, I, I, I just couldn't put it together in my head. But I mean, if it's got Tim Meadows doing the shtick, it's got to have some funny moments in it. But this one just was kind of a blind spot for me too. Um, but the skit is routinely hilarious, and Tim Meadows is pretty awesome. Yeah, I, I think he's even revived it like briefly. Like, it's one of those like when they want to as like sort of a ringer thing on uh, recent episodes, but yeah. T- and Tim Meadows, he really does deserve better. He is, he was yeah, one yeah. of the most just tireless pound proficient comedians and improvisers SNL ever had. And, and I will, I will go on record after uh, the tragedy of Phil Hartman, Tim mm. Meadows became the show's glue. If sure. the sketch was awful and he was in it, he would be great, and he would uplift right. the sketch. He could save a scene. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, that's extremely well put. I, man, I mean, and he he pops up stuff in in here to there. I think uh, Tim Meadows is very funny and walk hard in in a pretty oh, small yeah. role. Oh, He's like yeah. marijuana is not habit forming. Trust me, and he keeps <laughs> smoking more and more. Uh, it must be pretty city. expensive. It's the cheapest drug there is. <laughs> yeah, well, the hangover is probably awful. Shit. There are no side effects. Effects. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's. I, I got the. I mentioned this um, earlier in the show, but uh, I got to see him live, and right off the bat, he did kind of bring up the the elephant in the room. He's like, I'm not going to do ladies, man. Don't ask me. And to nip that in the butt, I think is very smart. Like he was polite, but firm about it. Cause I'm sure he's been to gigs and like, uh, Hoboken at three in the morning where people were like, ladies, man, ladies, man. Oh yeah, of course. You know, well, um, that, Tim Meadows a few years ago was on a podcast. I don't remember if it was Mark Maron or Gilbert Godfrey, but he but he yeah. had a story where he was just like doing a, a small stand up tour of the country, and he was at this one place, and like some asshole in the audience kept heckling him and kept you know shouting, "Do ladies, man, do whatever," and it got to the point where he just flat out said, "Look, I can't finish my set, so uh, all you people who have been trying to listen to me tell jokes, come up on the stage." You can ask me, because uh. I don't get paid if I'm not up here talking for a bare minimum of 47 minutes. So come up on the stage with me. You can ask me any question about anything in my career. I'll be happy to dish dirt. I'll be happy to tell you any That's funny amazing. story, because I got so many of them. And you, 
you can shut the fuck up and walk the fuck out. And like, <laughs> and then apparently like he then just spent like the next half hour, however, just like having a chat with these people who were mm. really earnest fans of his. And he real was, intimate like, experience. Really that, that's great. Yeah. So, I mean, so we've talked about, you know, the, the, the vast majority by far, you know, like eight of these uh, SNL films came out uh, between 1990 and, and 2000. And after Ladies Man, you know, it uh, had kind of a higher budget, 24 million, 10 million more than Superstar, according to Box Office Mojo. Uh, it didn't, you know, made about 13 million worldwide. Didn't do so great. So practically a decade passed before he got the most recent SNL movie, which was in 2010. I can't believe it's been that long. <laughs> MacGruber, based off this sketch by Will Forte, which is a, a takeoff on... MacGyver. Um, I've only seen this once. I was in a bad headspace when I saw it and don't recall liking it, but people keep on telling me MacGruber is like a low-key kind of masterpiece. Well, it is. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those movies where like every line of dialogue is a joke. It's, oh, it's okay. that yeah. kind of sort of comedy writer's sort of movie. Yeah, and um, it's funny because I never would have thought that like MacGyver would have like enough space in the referential like comedic lecture sure. to to merit something like MacGruber, but I'm glad we have it because it's a very, I mean, like the villain played by Val Kilmer is called Kunf. Like that's just, I think it's so stupid and hilarious mm-hmm. to me. Peter von Kunt, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and MacGruber is getting a, a series. On... Just in time for its 10th anniversary. Right. Yeah, I, right. I, I think perhaps on Peacock or, or something. Let me look at what the, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Peacock got an order of eight episodes. Um, I, I don't think it'll pop up till 2021. So the 11th anniversary, perhaps. But yeah, that um, Will Forte, the kind of humor he did on the SNL was always on the fringe. I, I don't want to use the word edgy, but it was it was its own animal. And mm, that yeah. that he had a big hit with that show on Fox, Last Man on Earth, which is yep. very avant-garde and, and weird kind of, I don't know if I'd even call it anti-humor. It's just... Like you don't believe a show like that should even exist, really. It's yeah. And <laughs> well, I, like I, I love Shitty to be such a schmuck. Like he can he can deliver some of the, like the weirdest dialogue and make himself look like such a jackass, and he does it wonderfully. Like that, lo- like that that city council member, uh, the guy running for city <laughs> council character, he would do with like the stilted speaking style. But like the thing with McGruber is like the prem- the premise of the sketch is that he is just flat out a MacGyver type, and yes, very yeah. smartly. Whenever they did one MacGruber sketch, you knew there'd be at least two more before the end of the episode because they're all like a minute or less. Yes, very short. Uh, it's the same climax. They're all in a room. The bomb's well, in about a room. to go off. Yeah, and he has to, and like he has to do like a MacGyver thing to solve the problem. But then he always gets caught up in some inane bullshit, and then we see the building he's in explode. And typically, typically the last sketch would be something along the lines of they do the MacGruber intro, and he'd get halfway through a sentence, and the building would just <laughs> blow up. And and you'd think that wouldn't be enough to make a to base a movie on. And you're right, it's not. The thing is. MacGyver is born out of such a particular era of eight of late eighties, early nineties action schlock that all that other stuff is what this movie is based on. <laughs> it's great. Cause it does kind of take on a little life of its own. Like I said, it's ba- it's, it takes so much from like the, you know, supercharged like Rambo action movies of the eighties and nineties. And then it also takes a framing device of like, you know, MacGyver, which is, I mean, I remember it mostly being silly, 
Um, I mostly remember it from Simpsons, actually, from Patty and Selma. Oh, yeah. And what I think people forget is that, you know, there's all the MacGyvers where, you know, he, you know, can diffuse a bomb with a freaking shoelaces and a, some toothpaste. But there's also a lot of even dumber episodes where he does something like pulls a guy out of a swamp with like a winch. <laughs> or like, <laughs> you know, changes a tire with a freaking, you know, a jack. And it's like, uh, you know, he doesn't like recreate the wheel every episode, folks. Like, you know. Well, and also you go back and see some of those shows and uh, people just remember the, the parts where he jury rigs stuff. But the, the right. pacing is, is uh, to my liking, frankly, awful in a oh, lot yeah. of these older <laughs> shows. Like, there's really slow. It's not like Miami Vice is, you know, I, I've been watching some of that lately. That looks sexy. You got the music. Like, the, the pacing actually is pretty decent. But yeah, stuff I think like MacGruber. Yeah, yeah. MacGruber. Not MacGruber. Shit. MacGyver. It, it just kind of sits there. And like, oh, yeah. really, you're going to spend like 10 minutes of him going into a room and making a stupid joke and smoking right. a cigar. Like what? It, I don't know. It, it was a different time. You had to <laughs> fill out because each episode of that was like an hour, right? Yeah, it was an hour long series. And uh, it's so funny. I remember a, a kajillion years ago when like it was a big deal to get a season of something on DVD for somehow my brother won the first season of MacGyver on like a radio raffle. Oh, okay. Well, you call in. It's yeah. like so bizarre. And like you yeah. know, at the time, like, you know, a new season of something was like 50, 60 bucks. So it's like, well, well, shit, we got the first season of MacGyver. Let's, let's watch it. And we were like, man, this is kind of stupid, huh? Yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, well, Thrasher, your, your old roommate, our, um, Mark Feminella, uh, he wrote an article, I remember, for the SCAD district, the student newspaper we all worked on uh, in Savannah, Georgia. Where oh, he yeah. said, you know, he just went to the the Walmart and, and picked up McGruber on D- season one on DVD because that's kind of you know in two thousand five the the DVD on TV stuff was really picking up, and he watched it and he was like, this stuff just sucks, man. Like he, he <laughs> yeah. it was like a pretty cool editorial, and I think because he got um, MacGyver and he got maybe something else like it could have been the A Team or something like that, and right. and just he said, you know, you have your memories and you go back to visit them, and it's like I spent you know. 30 bucks on this. Um, well, I mean, like, like MacGyver, it was never really a good, it was never really a good show. Uh, it just had a really good hook for a show. Yeah. 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 Brought a lot of people in, it did last for several years. It had a legacy, but even then that was like the whole joke with like, with Patty and Selma on the Simpsons being obsessed with MacGyver. It's like, well, what's, what's the funniest show that makes unintelligent people think they're intelligent that they could be obsessed with. Oh, MacGyver. And like all of their, all of their criticisms of MacGyver are kind of like summed up, you know, don't thank me, chief running bear. Thank the earth's gravitational pull. Exactly. And you know, like, like sideshow Bob's summation of the show. Well, that was a delightful piece of non clap trap that never made me want to retch. <laughs> so, so I, I, I mean, the delivery Kelsey grammar. That's a great line. Mm, Kelsey grammar is just, Really good. Um, but on the subject of MacGruber, though, like even the movie's soundtrack is just like comedy gold. Like there's there's a romantic song on the soundtrack that I believe is sung by Christian Wig, where it's like this kind of like '80s style, like slow love ballad. But then like it dovetails into this weird like pregnancy fetish thing. <laughs> where oh, like that's right. there's a whole lot, and I'm gonna have your baby. But then, like the thing of her getting pregnant goes on so long, it is clearly a weird sexual thing about being turned on by the idea of heavily pregnant women. It is so <laughs> great. 
Right. So, I mean, we've, t- we've just talked about here in this uh, sequel cast special episode about the SNL live action films, kind of a bird's eye view. And, um, you know, some are good, some are bad. I think overall the batting average isn't terrible. I uh, rewatched some of Coneheads recently and w- was surprised at how well it held up. Um, yeah, Coneheads is solid. Yeah, th- that's on, I believe, in Netflix in the U.S. It's streaming on there. So um, a lot of good effects with the the teeth on the the Conehead yeah. people. Good Paul Simon music, too. Yeah, definitely a great cast, yeah. Yeah, good cast. Uh, John Lovitz, I forgot he was in it as as the dentist. Yeah, like cap his teeth. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so, um, but uh, why don't we finish it on that thing you suggested, Thrasher? If you could do an SNL movie with any SNL character, what would it be? If I were, if I were to do one, because I think, I think if anybody deserves their own SNL movie, it's Keenan Thompson. Mm. I would want to do a movie based on his sketch. What up with that? And yeah, the, yeah. The whole, if for those of you who haven't seen it, the whole premise of the What Up with That sketch is that it's, it's a, uh, it's uh, like an African American hosted talk show. And Lindsey Buckingham is all from Fleetwood Mac is always the third <laughs> guest, played by uh, Bill Hader. Um, but like the whole, the whole premise is that like. It has this this uh, this really robust theme song the host sings, but he's so into the theme song he keeps interrupting guests when they answer a question to break into it, and it gets bigger and more elaborate each time until it becomes a production number that just takes over the whole show. And the mileage, like the ways they come up with to waste time during this theme song, are just brilliant. And so, like for my movie. It's really all about the backstage going goings on at that talk show. And like a significant anniversary is coming up and that'll be one of the things. There'll be a little bit of the classic what up with that sketch at the beginning, but the last 15 minutes of the movie will be the biggest most elaborate version of that sketch you could ever do to the point where we'll actually have like a living ex-president show up to do something dumb like juggle in the middle of it like get some get someone that big get one of the leaders of the former leaders of the free world to show up in the climax of the movie would would you just call it what up with that i think i think i i would call it like like what up with that colon a cinematic experience it should have some crazy subtitle cool um yeah i i know i kind of gave a pitch uh just now but I, i'm gonna pick something different and cheat um I think enough time has passed that you could bring up kind of an older character and, and kind of be a bit smarter with some of the humor, kind of more like Stuart saves his family. Um, I, I would do one based on the uh, Kristen Wiig and Will Ferrell, um, the, the goth talk segment. Oh, I love goth talk. Where, where they, they are just... With Cersei Nightshade. Yes, yeah. It was just just really something that was of the time with the goth culture, with uh, the Anne Rice, you know, the interview with the vampire books and all all these things, and it was a bit over the top. And I think enough time has passed. You you could do the the trope in the SNL movies of it's a man out of his time. This would be this is a couple out of their time. They're still dressed like the 90s goth people. And maybe they they try to um, I don't know like maybe they they have to something happens they move to a a small town and they have to try and 
be be chummy with the neighbors because maybe one of the goth talk people wants to run for mayor or maybe do something like that <laughs> and and like all the references they'd be making would be bands nobody would have heard of because they're from the 90s and uh, have um you would have to do some pretty cool set decorating for their house to make it like the ultimate 90s goth house have have <laughs> cameos from like uh the cure and and Maybe Robert Smith, Robert Smith, yep. and um, and probably Anne Rice herself could make a cameo, maybe of someone that is asking them why are they so interested in this vampire shit? Like just Mark, <laughs> Mark Reinhagen can be there, and everyone can try to figure out who he is. Yeah, maybe maybe a, a cameo from some of the actors from Forever Night. Um, I mean, you could really do some deep cuts there, and I, I would just call it the Goths. <laughs> very generic title but i think like the poster the yeah. yeah and but there's something like with the the poster you could have will ferrell did you know some kind of an adams family kind of knockoff as far as the poster goes yeah maybe they'd have relatives that could be something you could put in the story yeah. maybe christopher walken could play the grandfather he's like old old school goth yeah maybe that's the way you do it and maybe um have a crossover cameo from some of the uh, what we do in the shadows, people. Yeah, you know, it, like a father could be like a like a old school like Edgar Allan Poe scholar or something. <laughs> maybe a professor Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. So I mean, I, I think that you could do maybe something interesting with that. Enough time has passed. It's more of a period piece. Um, Alex, what's kind of your pitch for an SNL movie? You could use any character, any era, and you could even use actors that are no longer with us if you want. I um I was thinking what you could do is that. I was thinking take like a mockumentary approach, but do it as if okay, um, yeah. do so. Mine would be um, Tina Fey as um, Sarah Palin, and it would be this kind of mockumentary mm. like on the campaign trail, okay, um, with Sarah Palin, but uh, Tina Fey obviously doing her Sarah Palin, and then you know you, you could invite like uh, you could have like Kate McKinnon as like her like um, like a you know bumbling assistant, you know, trying to get her sure. uh, you know speeches and gigs, and you have other characters roll through as she goes from town to town. Um, maybe even like a revise like a like a Spinal Tap thing, you know, if they play like an opening gig for her, um, and just you know her doing her her usual um, Sarah Palin bit, but having you know not only is she you know a, a bumbling foil, but you're, she's also surrounded by all these all these other you know goofballs from the SNL alumni, and um, you know, but kind of like frame it like this very like serious you know like you know political uh, documentary because there's so many of those campaign trail documentaries and movies out there. I always thought that would be uh, pretty fascinating and funny. Gentlemen, uh, we have been remiss in our duties. We missed one. Oh, oh no. Well, it's, it's a, it exists in a gray area because though this is a character made famous by SNL, it is not owned by Broadway video or it is not, it is not like mm. it is still under the control of its creator. So the movie exists outside of the world of Lauren Michaels produced SNL movies. Uh, and that would be Mr. Bill. Who oh, had what? three had movies? What? Yeah. Okay. I I I, I looked this up because I could. In the part of my head, I thought, wasn't there a Mr. Bill movie? There are. Th it turns out there are three. So Mr. Bill, he's this like, it's a short that appeared on the early seasons of SNL that was like, a, this like little clay figure, too cheap to even be clay claymation. It would just stand <laughs> there, and it had this real children's story quality. But the whole point of it is horrible things would happen to Mr. Bill. He'd get crushed, flattened, burned, and he'd go, oh, no, oh, as no. that happened. So, turns out, 
So that was uh, it's still it's still owned by uh, its creator uh, Walter Williams, who submitted the original Mr. Bill films to SNL when they had called for people Super Eight home videos during the first season because they were looking for interesting home like amateur produced filler material, and it became its own its own kind of thing. So what it is is in 1986 there was a there was a TV movie produced for Showtime called Mr. Bill's Real Life Adventure. And then there were two more mm. in the mid uh, and they were in the uh mid to late 90s. Uh they were direct to video movies. There was Oh No, it's Mr. Bill's 20th anniversary and then the year after that Ho Ho No, it's Mr. Bill's Christmas special. Okay. Um uh, yeah, I have not seen these. I do uh, when I was 12 or something, we had a lot of did kind of Christmas as a family reunion thing at our new house in Georgia, and uh, someone got a videotape of the best of Mr. Bill. And a little of that character goes a long way. Um, uh, he's with perfect Mr. for shorts. We'll yeah, with Mr. Bill yeah. and with, with Sluggo, the guy that would smash him in the hand that would kill him at the end. <laughs> Mr. Hand, yeah. Yeah, Mr. Hand. Yep. And uh, so so how do they do it Like as as these kind of uh, made-for-showtime specials? Did you Have you watched one of these, or you uh, just... No, I just knew they existed because okay. I remembered seeing the video cover for the the real life adventure. But uh, <clears throat> apparent, but apparently, like the Mister Bill's real life adventure, it's like has like the format of a sitcom. So it's like Mister Bill living with like a human family that is regular size. But then you know, Mister Horrible Mister Bill stuff keeps happening to him. <laughs> that sounds profoundly uninteresting. It's strange. I'm looking at it right now. The cover, it literally, it's got like Mr. Bill with like a Polaroid of like a family on on top of him, and just says right next to his head, like, "Oh no!" I, I, yeah. I like, might try to track this down just to see. Sure. Although it was apparently released through uh, Paramount, so there is still that connection uh, wow. with the rest of the SNL movies. That's a, that's a deep cut. I did not know those exist. That's a good find, Thrasher. Um, all right. So I mean, we, I think we did a good job here talking about the uh, SNL films in this epic three-hour episode for a sequel yeah. cast special <laughs> um you can follow me on twitter at m-a-t-w-b-t follow the show on twitter at sequel cast 2 uh, thrasher you can follow me on twitter at internet mayor also if you want to support me and my work check out the puppy dragon enamel pin kickstarter just look for puppy dragon enamel pins on kickstarter or follow the link in my pinned uh, tweet on twitter uh we're very close to reaching uh to reaching our funding goal and after that it's all glorious glorious stretch goals from now until october and alex uh, you can follow me on twitter at crab nebula 1914 and uh, check out my YouTube, The Trailer Project, where there's trailer commentaries and other fun stuff before it turns into the Dennis Hopper network. <laughs> so, um, for Sequel Cast Special, this is Matt. This is Thrasher. <laughs> this is Alex. Saying, if you're gonna spew, spew into this. Oh no! Consume mass quantities. Oh, no!